Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermonjeet Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Mariella Philbin, who is an attending physician at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and an associate member of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Uh, did I leave anything out? No, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really happy we could chat. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Philbin, you uh, work on brain tumors, uh, different types of brain tumors. Uh, you focus a lot on pediatric uh, brain tumors. And what I'd really like to discuss with you today, though, is a, a relatively new technology that is being used that seems to play a big role in some of the recent publications that you've had really fascinating, interesting papers. And, uh, and that technology is single cell RNA sequencing. And right. so before we actually get into uh, w what these tumors are and, and why, why we're studying them, I think we'll be talking a lot about single cell RNA sequencing. So could you maybe briefly go over what exactly that is? Yeah, so that's an exciting technology um, that allows us to look at the transcriptomes of the mRNAs within the tumor in a completely unbiased way. Um, you can do it in many ways, you can set it up in many ways, but the way we do it is really unbiased, meaning any cell that is alive or has a good quality signal will be analyzed at the same time. And that means you'll get a really nice overview, not only of all the different tumor cell types, but also of normal cells within the, within the tumor and how they interact with each other based on the transcriptome. Okay, great. And so the, the pediatric brain tumors that, and also adult brain tumors, which we'll talk about, you also had a, a really interesting study on glioblastoma, which is a primary uh, high-grade tumor uh, generally in adults. And, um, but so for pediatric brain tumors, uh, what uh, what was known in terms of the genetics or cellular states prior to this technology being available? And what do you think this technology of RNA, a single cell RNA-seq is adding to the knowledge of uh, pediatric brain tumors? So for example, you, you, had, yeah, a, one public, you had one publication on uh, 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 diffuse gliomas, midline, uh, diffuse, uh, diffuse midline gliomas, which are generally found in pediatric patients. Uh, for example, in that study, uh, what do you think this is adding? Yeah, so I have to go back a little bit to explain how this all came about. Mm -hmm. So I'm a pediatric neuro-oncologist, and I'm mostly interested in the uh, pediatric brain tumors that we cannot treat right now, meaning where we really don't have long-term survivors at the moment. And those are high-grade DFBG, or diffuse intrinsic protein glioma, and hemispheric hydrogliomas, or glioblastomas. So those are really the two tumors I'm focusing most on in my laboratory, um, but also recently um, branching out a little bit to others that we can't really treat. For example, ETMR, or embryonal tumor with multilayered rosettes, um, or like metalloblastoma we've recently published on. Um, and the reason I'm so interested in those is, of course, as a clinician, that's the biggest pain of my existence, right? The, the absence of treatment options and the lack of hope that we can offer to our patients it's just extremely, extremely painful. And so this passion of finding 
finding a better understanding and then hopefully also therapeutic options for these patients. That's what I want to do with my life. And I also have to go back a little bit in terms of pediatrics versus adult brain tumors, Mm -hmm. because when I trained in medical school, we thought they're all the same. The hydrogliomas in adults and pediatrics look the same on the microscope. So for the longest time, we just literally thought they're of the same genetic makeup. And then finally in 2012, um, several, several groups around the planet found that especially in diffuse midline gliomas, there's a particular mutation present in 80 to 90% of all kids that have that tumor. And that mutation is a histone mutation that had never been seen before in any other tumor, and for sure not in other um, brain tumors in adults. So that for the first time then put the pediatric brain tumors into its different corner, so to say, like realizing that those are probably driven by a completely different mechanism than the adult counterparts. At that point, that's all we knew. That was already a huge, huge finding. It really changed how we view pediatric brain tumors. But we really didn't understand still what made them so special, especially hard to treat. Um, And then when I joined the Broad Institute in 2013 and 14, this technology of single cell RNA sequencing had just come up. So I thought if we want to really dive into what drives a tumor, how heterogeneous are they, and can we learn about it in terms of does it recapitulate development, yes or no, and to what extent we should use that technology. So it was so, the technology itself was so early on when I learned about it um, that we couldn't use the tiny, tiny samples we have available from our pediatric patients. So the first studies we did were, was on adult tumors. And that's probably what you referred to. So the first um, adult uh, papers coming out of the lab I was in, I was in Mario Suva's lab at the time, was an adult oligodendroglioma and adult astrocytoma. And we saw this beautiful, beautiful hierarchy come up where we found that each of those tumors had stem cells or stem-like cancer cells, and then also differentiating cancer cells. And while that was very interesting to us from a technology perspective, um, I still wanted to know what are the pediatric ones? Are the pediatric ones way more immature? Does the histone mutation change you know, everything about them in relation to the adult ones. So that's where we were in, in 2015 when we first started doing it in, in pediatrics. Got it. So so you mentioned quite, quite a few things there. So I want, I want to go over a, a few of them. So uh, one thing that you mentioned is uh, cellular uh, hierarchy. Can you, uh, and in the, in the context of uh, some cells being more stem-like and some maybe being more differentiated, can you talk about what that means for the tumor or what that eventually means for the patients? Right. right. And it's a very, that's a great question, a very complicated question. The answer is not that easy. Um, basically, before, before we were able to do signals of sequencing, we thought all the tumor cells might be the same in terms of how quickly they proliferate and divide and what they do in their lifetime, so to say which is what we thought was just to expand and grow and not do anything else. Turns out when you do single cell RNA sequencing, that's not the case. Especially the pediatric gliomas, but also the adult hydrogliomas have a hierarchy, meaning there's a few cells that have different jobs than others, and only a particular percentage within all those cells. That's what we thought all the tumor cells were doing, which is dividing and dividing and dividing all over again. cancer stem cells now as so the cells that really drive the tumor that are at the at the root of the tumor that have the capability to divide and keep 
keep a, a STEM-like phenotype, so to say, kind of stuck in an early development, and all they do is divide and give rise to their progeny. However, the different, like the difference, or what we found with the single cell RNA sequencing, were also differentiating tumor cells, meaning the daughter cells, some of the daughter cells of those bad cancer stem cells, were able to remember that they had a job to do and differentiated towards almost normal glial cells in the brain. And that was very shocking for us to see, that a tumor that is so malignant, so bad, and we cannot save our patients, yet 20 to 30% of those tumor cells differentiate towards almost normal and exit the cell cycle. Mm. And we've tested that in different ways now. The ones that differentiate and exit the cell cycle cannot form a tumor in other experiments or when you implant them back into mouse brains, for example. Right. So there's a huge difference functionally, and that's what we mean by hierarchy. Proliferating cells and non-proliferating cells that are, that are completely different on a phenotypic scale. Great, and, and so actually I, w- I was gonna ask about the, so there are, there are several uh, theories or models you could say that scientists use to describe how carcinogenesis occurs, how cancer comes about. So there's the stochastic model, kind of random mutations build up in important genes that uh, lead to this transformation. And then what you meant, you mentioned stem cells a lot. So cancer stem cell model is a little bit different where there, I think that's where the hierarchy comes in, right? There's a self-renewing population and then a more differentiated population. And so I was actually going to ask, uh, you know, how can single cell RNA uh, address either one or both of these kind of uh, models? Uh, and I think you, you, you've touched on that uh, quite a bit. So in, especially in, in, in the, uh, the uh, diffuse uh, midline glioma uh, study, you really showed that there is this hierarchy where there is kind of more stem-like cells that actually resemble normal uh, progenitor cells for normal brain, like oligodendrocyte progenitor uh, cells. And so you call them like OPC-like, right. like all, right? And so I, I thought that, that that was fascinating. It was fascinating. And the question, so when we initially found this, um, this finding, the question was, is it all due to genomic alterations underlying that? So is it certain mutations or certain carbon variations that drive either the self-renewing proliferating phenotype or the more differentiating phenotype? Mm-hmm. So we were able, um, with Hovistad, a very, very uh, talented bioinformatician and computational biologist in our group, um, to look at that in more detail. So when you overlay the genomic information, genetic information of each single cell, and you reconstruct a phylogenetic tree, um, actually this hierarchy of self-renewing and differentiating cells was present in every single subclone that occurred over time. Because you can see those genetic subclones arising in the tumor with evolution naturally occurring or chemotherapy and radiation-induced evolution of the tumor, but did not explain the hierarchy. So in my mind, this developmental hierarchy is even more hardwired than the genomic alterations meaning there's some transcriptional program or state that drives these tumors that they need it, basically. They're addicted to this transcriptional state and they cannot turn it off. If they do, then they exit the cell cycle and differentiate. Right, so this, this idea of uh, tumor evolution, uh, tumors can only evolve if you believe in evolution, right? Otherwise, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Otherwise, something else must be happening. 
Right. <laughs> but uh, it, it, yeah, it, I didn't it, understand that sentence. Sorry, can you say some of it again? Oh no, no problem. So I, I, I was saying, I was saying, uh, you, you mentioned tumor evolution. I was saying that oh, tumors can only evolve if you believe in evolution, right? Otherwise, something else must be oh, happening. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's the reaction I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, tumor evolution is it's a very, uh, it's a very real thing that we kind of, as uh, as people who work in labs and uh, have tumor cell lines that we grow, we can right. we can easily see tumor evolution if you just change the conditions even slightly. In the dish. Even in the dish, exactly right. You you if you just if even if you do nothing and you kind of culture the cells under normal conditions over a, a long period of time, you essentially see a shift in the genetics, right? The tumor, the, the tumor right. cells that have some sort of uh, genetic changes, uh, they, they end up prolifer proliferating more because they're more fit in some way. And so it, it's, it's, it's incredible to see that just, just in a dish. And uh, it's, it's kind of scary to think that that is actually what's also happening in patients uh, in response to therapies, for example. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like I on a, on my clinician heart is also very afraid of that, thinking that whatever I do to treat these tumors, tumors might just you know find a way around that. However, finding a developmental hierarchy that's so hardwired that every single genetic clone still has it gives me hope because that means maybe we just have to change our thinking and instead of targeting particular mutations that might only be present in a subclone, we might just target transcriptional programs instead or epigenetics that drive them. Um, and then hopefully reach every single cell, no matter where it is in its genetic evolution. Right. That's the hope. Yeah, hope hopefully. And uh, but so so that also I think is related to the concept of uh, cancer cell plasticity. I think it's a very related concept. Right. So can you talk about what plasticity means yes. in this context? Yeah, exactly. So plasticity, I think of the um, ability of a cell to become anything else it wants. So the higher the uh, plasticity, the more different things it can do. And so we think of embryonal stem cells as extremely, that's the extreme of, of plastic. And we have on the other end of the scale, a differentiated cell that cannot become anything else anymore, but not plastic at all. And that's an interesting question because you could say, well, once you define a hierarchy and you have this beautiful, in our case, a lambda shape, who tells you that even once you're differentiated as a cancer cell, you can't go back? Right. And that's the biggest concern because then that means whatever you target on the cancer stem cell side doesn't matter if the cells, you know, that result can just easily go back and become a cancer stem cell again. In the case of the diffuse midline gliomas, that's not what we saw though. So in DIPCs, we found, at least to our best knowledge, and you know, I might see something else in the future, but to my current best knowledge, the differentiation trajectory seemed unidirectional, meaning from the cancer stem cells towards differentiation, and have not yet any to go back. Sorry, you you and cut you cut out at the last second there. If you just, uh, what's that? You cut out at the last second there. Sorry for the listeners. We're doing this over uh, the internet, which is not perfect. But yeah, so you cut out because you repeat the last couple of sentences. I'm not exactly sure where. Where I was cut off, but the concern would be that in DIPGs, um, you have to make sure that if you believe in this trajectory or in this developmental hierarchy, you want to make sure that whatever you induce by going towards differentiation is not reversible. 
because if differentiation induction is reversible and any kind of cell can just go back and become a cancer stem cell again, then none of those therapeutic approaches would ever work. But in DIPG, that's not what, we, what we've seen in the dish or in mice. So whenever, in our case, whatever we did to differentiate those cells, once they were deeply differentiated, they were not able to go back and form a new tumor. However, and that's a big, big caveat here, in the hemispheric hybridiomas or glioblastomas, that was not the case. In, that, in those tumors, all the different corners of differentiation were kept the plasticity alive to an extent that they could become anything they wanted, even after so-called differentiation. Right. So, so even I'm, in yeah. two different kinds of hygrogliomas, plasticity was completely different. So I'm, I'm really glad you, you, brought up, you brought up the glioblastoma study because that's what I wanted to ask you about uh, after uh, discussing plasticity because that, that study kind of, it, it blew my mind in a sense. And one of the experiments in, in that paper that I think is very telling, and, and I think you discussed this experiment when, when you were here at Duke giving, giving a talk, is that when, uh, so you, you did single cell sequencing on glioblastoma models and found that there are four particular uh, subtypes that it can be grouped in based on that, those single cell RNA sequencing results. And then uh, you, the experiment where you took one of those, you isolated cells from one of those types and put them into mice and, can, can you, and then saw that it recapitulated the entire four corners. Can you talk about that experiment and what that might mean? Yeah, exactly. So and I want to contrast it again to the DIPGs because the difference is so stark to us. So in DIPGs, when we inject the cancer stem cell population into immunocompromised mice, mouse brains, and they form tumors quickly and immediately, and the tumors recapitulate the whole tumor that it came from. However, in DIPG, when you inject only the differentiated tumor cells, nothing happens. No tumors form, right. and the cells just stay there. And over time, because we sacrificed some of those mice, some, some cells are still there. In some cases, they're gone. So they must senesce over time and then just die out. Hmm. However, in GBM, in glioblastoma, like you mentioned, we found um, four different corners of differentiation, less or more differentiation. And no matter which of those four corners we injected into immunocompromised mouse brains, they would always be able to form a tumor there was not even a difference in latency, meaning not even the time was different, you know, in terms of forming a tumor. And the resulting tumors all look the same, meaning that whatever cell you injected from the initial GBM was able to recapitulate the whole plasticity and hierarchy that it came from. And that was just very strikingly different to DFG. And scary in its own way, right? Because that means, and that also, you know, that's what we know from, from the clinical course, Whatever we inhibit, if we inhibit one mutation of, that's more prevalent in one corner, doesn't almost matter to the tumor cells. They figure out a way to become all the other ones immediately. Yeah, that's uh, that's very scary, I guess, for for patients and for for treatment purposes. In in your experiment, it's scary, but it's also hopeful, right? Because it, if it means at least that means blocking one corner doesn't make a lot of sense. However, you could say, what happens if you block all four corners? because those four corners were present in whatever genetic subtype that glioblastoma belonged to. Right. And that's hopeful even for this particularly plastic, highly aggressive cancer. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's very true. And so I wanted to ask you that in, in these mouse experiments that you've done so far, have you, uh, have you tried 
uh, in addition to using single cell RNA seq to to figure out that the tumors recapitulate all four corners, have you tried adding a stress like some sort of chemotherapy drug and and seeing how that affects what the end result is in terms of the the four corners being recapitulated? Yeah, we're just doing those experiments pretty much, but uh, too early to tell. My impression so far is, especially on the DAPG side, whatever you treat with, um, unless it's really differentiating the cells, cytotoxic chemotherapy doesn't really do all that much. And we know that from our patients, unfortunately. Um, so you, with chemo or cytotoxic therapy, you kill off a certain percentage of drugs. But, you know, if any cancer stem cell is left, it can just grow back. The whole tumor can grow back. And that's what we see. So we'll need to be smarter and do more than just, so to say, cytotoxic therapy. Okay. And in, in, ter in terms of uh, the, the technique of single-cell RNA-seq, I just had a quick question. So uh, previously, in general, uh, whenever researchers, physicians got a chance uh, to get uh, human tumor samples, they would uh, break them off into pieces. One piece would be used to potentially create a cell line that we would culture in a dish or put in a mouse. One piece would be used to do histology, which uh, essentially is we, you know, the, the tissue is fixed and then sliced very thin and then stained for cells and different proteins. And then another piece would be used for some sort of genomics analysis, right? right. And so this is, so there's never the entire tumor in any one of these analyses. It's always a piece. And so right. one potential drawback of that is, for example, for the genomics analyses, if you're looking at copy number or RNA expression, it, you you might be getting kind of like oh if you if you picture a tumor as a as a circle you might just be getting a, a slice uh, a, or a sphere that you might just be getting a chunk like right that, right and not the right. not the whole picture and so similarly in, in RNA seq because it's 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 uh it's it's a lot of work to to kind of uh, get all these cells running through so if for for each specimen if for example you you characterize 3,000 or 4,000 cells. Do you, that relative to the size of the original tumor, that's not a lot of cells, right? But so do you think that could be adding some sort of right. bias to these results? Yeah, certainly. And um, definitely a concern of mine. And we are, there's different things we are doing to address this. Initially, when we started this study, we um, sometimes got like two small pieces of the tumor, not really knowing where they were from. So our approach back then was to combine those, um, make a single cell suspension of the combination of those, and then afterwards divide it up into cell line generation, PDX generation, and our single cell RNA-seq. So that at least we knew whatever we were using for single cell RNA-seq was the exact same starting you know, melting pot that we were using for the other things. Um, so that was the initial approach. And now um, we're very, very interested in looking at different parts of each tumor. And um, in DAPG, that's very, very difficult to do because those tumors are in the brainstem and any surgical procedure there can potentially be very dangerous. So you can't really, you know, go, go around in the, in the brainstem and, and take samples from many different regions. But in some cases, we do get tiny needle biopsies from different regions. We look at that. And then we also look at autopsy samples. Um, we typically want to donate their, their uh, child's tumor to research knowing that we have to do something to advance the field. And from that, we are starting to learn very interesting things. Um, preliminarily, I can tell you that 
once the hierarchy is set, the hierarchy is set in the same in all different parts, but the percentages changes. So the either lambda shape or in the DPGs or the chi shape in the GBMs, we can always see that, but the percentage of all the corners, so to say, is different in different parts. And what I'm even more in, I'm excited about now is looking at the microenvironment and the tumor cells and how, of course, I assume at least, or hypothesize will be very different in different parts. For example, comparing the infiltrating edge of the tumor to the bulk of the tumor. So those, those results we don't have yet, but I'm, I'm excited to see that because then hopefully we can get a, you know, different pathways, different programs that we might be able to block to prevent infiltration, for example. Yeah, that'd be great. I, I mean, we, we talked about tumor cells, but we haven't even discussed all the all the the cells in the tumor microenvironment, all the immune cells that might be infiltrating into the tumor. And so all these cells can essentially be characterized and picked up by single cell RNA-C pretty efficiently. Exactly, that's right. And um, the hydroglioma in pediatrics and also in adults are unfortunately very cold immunologically, meaning there's not a lot of immune cells that we find there um, if we don't pull them out on purpose. So in the initial studies, it was completely unbiased and the percentage of immune cells was very, very low. So then um, now in our you know, next iteration of, of single-cell RNA-seq, we're pulling immune cells out in addition to this unbiased view because we really want to see, even if it's a cold tumor, what makes it cold? Like, and you know, are those the remaining T cells and also are they completely suppressed and by what? Because it gives us the opportunity to look at all the receptors and ligands present in, in both kinds of cells. So more to come on that side. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. So, so you're, you're a pediatric oncologist, right? And, and so for oncology, what, what age range is that? So our age range, it's also a not so easy to answer question. Um, age range is from zero to 21 at most centers. However, as you can imagine, we, we become very, very close to the families that we follow over time. So if, if a patient of ours turns 21, we don't send them away, of course, or right. have to find a new, a new doctor. Yeah. So we keep many of our, our patients until much longer. But officially for new diagnosis, um, zero to 21, um, uh, that would be the official. <laughs> got it, got it. So, no. so what, what drew you to pediatric oncology specifically? Because there are, you know, there's regular oncology, <laughs> you know, a lot of adult tumors that, that get a lot of focus. And so what, what is it that drew you to pediatric oncology? Yeah, well, it was one of those serendipitous events. Um, I was in med school. I was excited about becoming a doctor, hadn't even really gotten my PhD yet, so it was a pure MD at first, and then met a little patient on the pediatric oncology ward, and she was five, and she had DFBG. Wow. And I initially, as a med student, you you think your medicine is so great and can tackle anything, and then I had to really learn the hard way that we couldn't offer her anything. And that's a long time ago now, and we still cannot offer anything to those patients. And since then, I've been really just hope down this disease and, and just promise basically to, to dedicate my career to this. Because I, I just think it's it's inconceivable almost that there is no hope for certain patients out there in 2019. Yeah. And I'm even more, you know, I'm reading more about the history now. I recently learned that Neil Armstrong's daughter had DFBG as well. Wow. And even her back then in the 60s, 
was treated the same way that we're treating today. And, you know, she didn't have a chance back then and, and our patients still don't have a chance. And I just really, really want to change that. So that was it. I met this little girl. And since then I've been in pediatric neuro-oncology. <laughs> So, so that it seems like this experience of, of meeting this young patient, so that informed your decision to be a physician scientist, right? To have the MD and the PhD. Exactly. And, yeah. Um, That's also true because yeah. I went back after that and, and said, I, I basically just painfully realized the limits of medicine in, in, in this patient, not only in her. And I just thought if we want to make any progress, we have to understand better. And, I went back basically to my to my dean at the time, and I said I want to I want to do a PhD, and so I started taking um, biochemistry classes. At the same time, uh, I was in med school, and then graduated with my PhD a few years after my MD. So the other way around, that most right. people do it. Yeah. So so you did all all your 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 training, your education. Sorry, I should say MD PhD in Austria. Is that is that correct? Right. Yeah. So yeah. so what what was it like uh, studying there and then moving to the U.S. to to do your uh, residency and fellowship? Yeah. So I not only studied there, I even um, did my pediatrics residency and, and um, oncology training. Okay. My fellowship in Austria, okay. and had a fantastic time. Honestly, I I was trained by one of the best oncologists out there. Her name is Irene Slouts, and she's one of the you know, key figures in pediatric neuro-oncology worldwide. So I loved working with her um, and basically was on the tenure track in the, in Austria at the Medical University of Vienna. But part of the tenure track is that you have to go to another university to learn something new and bring it back. Wow, okay. So that's great, right? Yeah. And very, like, I love that thought. My, my boss, Irene Slouts, had been um, to America, to the U.S. for her postdoc many years before me. And so, you know, she was all excited, I was all excited, and I, I went on a tour in the States, um, found a very good match here at Dana-Farber Boston Children's with Ross Siegel, my first postdoc mentor, and came here for two years, right? That was the plan at least. And then just totally fell in love. As soon as I started here, I just totally fell in love with this amazing collaboration between basic scientists and clinicians, and how there's a really, there's a big role for this in-between also, the physician scientist who is on both in both places. And I just thought that if we're going to make any progress, it needs to be in a place where there's room for everybody and they're all collaborating. The basic scientists, you know, in all in all areas, nanotechnology, uh, medicinal chem- chemistry, you know, engineers and physicians and everything in between. I just really love that. I'm, like 12 years later, so, so excited about this, this amazing capability here. So yeah, I stayed. I had to redo all my training, so I had to wow. retake my residency and my fellowship. But I have not regretted any of those days. It's been a wonderful experience all along. Wow, so that, that's, that, that is a little funny that everything, it seems, every, sometimes uh, it, it all happens by chance, right? So you, you ended up coming to the U.S. because your university required that, that you should in order yeah. to progress there. And then you just ended up loving it here and you stayed. That, that's great. Right. And yeah. I have to say, I love, I love that rule that Vienna had. <laughs> However, they must have lost probably about a third of all the people they sent away, right? Because that's what happens when you send I was, away people in, the, in, your, in their late 20s, early 30s. I was going to say, I mean, do, did you ever uh, speak to anybody at the university and maybe they expressed some regret that they, they lost out on a, on, a, <laughs> yeah. on a physician scientist there? You know, it's, it's 
it's funny to say that initially I think they were sad. However, I'm still working with them very, very closely. And on many levels, we are sharing tumor samples, projects. I have my, the second postdoc in my lab is from Vienna. Like, so two of the five are from Vienna now. And we have a, just a very fun collaboration that's becoming more like better and better over the years. Mm -hmm. And and so I think now it's a win-win. It was hard at the beginning, but now it's a win-win because of the intellectual exchange. Great. Well, so I wanted to ask you if, because uh, you have a, a, a pretty unique experience, I would say. I mean, I guess there, there, there are people that are pursuing research and come to the U.S. from abroad or go abroad from the U.S. and establish themselves as faculty members in these countries. But you actually said you had to, you, as an MD-PhD, you had to redo your training here and, and, and all that. So for somebody who is uh, an MD-PhD or a, a PhD student like myself, who is who is interested in in getting into this, getting into academic research? What are there any pieces of advice that you would offer to to somebody who who's kind of headed in that direction? Yeah, all these decisions are very hard, and you know now, oh, um, backside it's all easier, of course. But I have to say, when it was at that ranging point, you know, should I really go back and redo all my training? Is it going to be worth it? Right, that's the biggest question I ask myself. Of course, now I can say, yes, it was worth it, but back then I didn't know. <laughs> right. So I think it's all about passion, right? If in my case, I just knew after a lot of soul searching that I, I really wanted that, that patient part of my life. I really felt very strongly that I couldn't really live without it. And in that sense, it was worth it, right? And that might be completely different for somebody who just feels slightly different, right? So I think it really takes deep soul searching, like what? what drives you every day what gets you up in the morning and for me it's just truly the combination of both right if i so my advice sometimes is if you can decide between for the you know future md or phds or mdpgs out there if you can decide between one of those your life will be easier if you can decide on one of those mm -hmm. because it would cut down your training time it would you know cut down the, the many different heads you have to wear each day rushing from one to the other but if you just really, truly cannot decide and you won't want the patient side and the research, then my advice is to just go full steam. You know, if that's really your passion, do it. And I think there's, there's only, I, don't, I can't even imagine a job being more rewarding, honestly. But it is hard and it really takes, I think, this deep, deep passion. It's almost like a calling, right? That sounds maybe a little bit cheesy, but it's, <laughs> it's a calling because the sacrifices are huge along the way, time-wise, financially, family or the absence of family time we have and so on. But yeah. if you have a passion, follow it by any, you know, by any means. That sounds like very hopeful advice, which, which actually also came through when we were discussing the results of, of some of your studies, which is my initial reaction was, oh no, there are these four corners and the cells are plastic. Oh, that's scary for patients. But you were saying, no, it's also hopeful because maybe we can block off. So that's, that's a really nice perspective there. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's what, you know, that's what life is all about. I think right. humans are side and that's why we are all in research, right? Because we are hopeful that through the progress of science, we can lead to progress for humanity. And right. we just have to keep on pushing as hard as we can and it will make progress. Yeah. Well, I, for one, am very uh, excited for the, the things that are upcoming in, in your research and your lab. And I look forward to, to reading it sometime. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Oh, thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. It was fantastic.
Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.